The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So our scripture um, this morning is um, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17, and 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 32. So we're going to start with 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And now our second scripture reading um, is 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 32. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is the word of the Lord. So I do invite you, whether you're here with us in person or you're joining us online, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Even though this is the first Sunday of the season of Lent, we are actually going to finish up our series entitled Family Meals before we launch out into our Lenten series next week. Now in this series, Family Meals, we have been looking at how God provides the power for us to persevere in our faith. And we've seen he does it through means of grace. Physical meals feed our flesh. Likewise, God has provided spiritual meals that feed our faith. And each week when we come together as a family, we come together to feast on these meals. We feast through the word, through song, through prayer, through fellowship. We gather for family meals. And to conclude our series, there is one more meal that we want to zoom in on in order to see exactly how it is that it feeds our faith, namely the table. Communion. The Eucharist. Or as it's probably most commonly called, the Lord's Supper. The table is a means 
of grace. I'm not saying that it is a means by which you earn merit with God and make yourself right with God. No, we are not talking about justification. We are talking about sanctification. The table is a means of God's sanctifying, sustaining, strengthening grace. Our God is a God of means. He works his power through things. He doesn't just snap his fingers and provide you with the power to persevere. He provides it through his word, does he not? Are we not strengthened here? He provides it through prayer, does he not? Are we not sustained there? He provides it through praise, through fellowship, and yes, through the table. Our question this morning is how? How is the table a means of grace? Shades, we desperately need to know how because we are particularly in need of the grace that God gives us through this table. We're particularly in need of it during the divisive and disconnected moment that we are living in. This grace specifically, particularly, is a balm to this moment, I believe. We are desperately in need of this family meal. So we ask, how is it a means of of grace. To answer that, there are at least three things that we need to see. This will guide the rest of our time this morning. We need to see the directions of the table, the declaration of the table, and the do this of the table. The directions of the table, the declaration of the table, and the do this of the table. So first, let's see the directions of the table, vertical and horizontal vertical and horizontal. What I mean by that is that vertically, this table is a means of grace in our relationship with God. And think vertical. In our relationship with God, the table is a means of grace. And horizontally, this table is a means of grace in our relationships with one another. You're in 1 Corinthians 10. Read verses 16 and 17 with me. The Apostle Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation It's present tense, ongoing, continuous action in the present. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread or one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Do you see how Paul right here points to the vertical and horizontal directions of the Lord's Supper? You see that? Vertically, he says that for those of us who have union with Christ, for those of us who are Christians, in other words, that's what he means when he says we. Those of us who've been united to Christ, we are believers in Christ. We, we have union with Christ. For those of us who have union with Christ, he says this meal is a present participation in the blood and body of Christ. The Greek word that's translated participation right there is one that you might have heard before, koinonia. Koinonia is most commonly translated in your Bible as fellowship. Paul is saying that through this supper we have fellowship or we commune with Christ. Because of our union with Christ that we already have, through this supper we can have communion with Christ. Think about it like this. Think about it like a, like a kid inviting friends over to their birthday party. I joke all the time about how kids are in charge of one meal a year. So the biggest threat they can ever level to a friend is you're not invited to my birthday. It's like the one meal I'm in charge of. And if we're not at peace with one another, you don't get to come to the table. 
Think about a kid inviting friends over to a birthday party. It's because you're friends. It's because you are already at peace. You already have the friendship. It's because of that you get to go to the party and participate in the celebrating, the fellowshipping, the communion. So also the Lord's Supper. It is because you are united with Christ. This table is for Christians, believers, who are united with Christ. It's because you're united with Christ that you can come to the table to participate in the celebrating, the fellowshipping, the communing with Christ. That's why we call it communion. Because the table is a means by which we actually presently commune with Christ. Jesus is graciously present here. Yes, he is graciously always present with us, but he is present here working in a special way, just like he works in a special way through the word or through song or through prayer. This is another means of grace. He is here presently working, graciously strengthening our faith. I know that that is at least part of what Paul means for us to understand right here. That's at least part of how he means for us to understand this. I know that because of the very beginning of chapter 10. we got a lot to cover, so I don't have time to read it all to you, but you can go back and read it later. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 10, Paul actually compares the Lord's Supper to what God did in the Old Testament for his people as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. Well, do you remember what God did for them as they wandered through the wilderness? He provided them supernaturally, spiritually. He provided them with food and with drink to sustain. He provided them with manna from heaven and water from the rock, food and drink to sustain them through the wilderness all the way to the promised land. Paul draws a comparison saying, likewise, God provides us with spiritual food and spiritual drink to sustain our faith through the wilderness of this world until we reach the promised land of new creation. Paul is showing us that one of the means that God uses to sustain us, to provide the sustaining, strengthening grace, is the table. The table is a means of grace vertically. For at this table we commune with Christ. And not just with Christ. We don't just commune with Christ here, but also with one another. The table is a means of grace horizontally in our relationships with one another. Did you see where Paul pointed that out in verse 17? Look back at it. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Do you see what Paul's illustrating with the one bread, the one loaf right here? We all partake of the one left historically in the, in the New Testament and then throughout a lot of church history and even in some churches still today, the practice is to use one loaf to, to capture this symbolism right here. Paul says we all partake of the one loaf. That literally brings us together. It unites us. Now Paul means for us to see right here that the one true loaf is Christ. In other words, it doesn't matter if we're actually using little individual pieces of bread or multiple loaves of bread. We are still, as a church, taking from one loaf. We are partaking of Christ. And it's because, not because we literally all take of one piece of bread, but it's because we are literally all united to Christ that we are also united to one another. It's like, it's like my kids. Uh, my kids are all united to me as their father. 
Therefore, they are united, whether they like it or not, to one another as siblings. Likewise, because Christians are all united to Christ, we are also united, like it or not, we are all united to one another as his church. This supper reminds us of that reality. The table literally brings us together. This is not an individualistic thing. It's, it's kind of in vogue or become in fashion to practice communion individualistically. And by that, I mean literally like not within the gathered church, like in your home, privately, or uh, in a small group or something like that. This meal is meant to be a communal meal with the gathered church to whom you belong. It's a family meal. Uh, we're about to be in 1 Corinthians 11 here in just a second. Throughout that chapter, every time Paul talks about this meal, he's going to use this phrase, when you come together. He uses it in chapter 11 and verse 17, when you come together. Verse 18, when you come together. Verse 20, when you come together. Verse 33, when you come together. Verse 34, when you come together. It's like he wants us to get the point. This table literally brings us together and not just to remind us of our union with each other but so that we might have communion with each other in that moment we eat this meal together we celebrate it together giving thanks together this is why we call it the eucharist eucharist it literally means thanksgiving this is a meal through which we celebrate and give thanks together. The Lord's Supper is a family meal, a means of grace horizontally in our relationships with one another. Shades, do the directions, vertical and horizontal, do the directions of this table help you see how it is a means of God sanctifying, sustaining, strengthening, grace through the table god is constantly calling us back week after this is why we come week after week to the table god is constantly calling us back to communion with him and communion with his church shades this is the grace that we desperately need it's the grace that corinth desperately needed in their particular moment Corinth needed this grace because they were having vertical and horizontal issues. They had vertical issues in their relationship with Christ. If you read all of 1 Corinthians 10, it reveals that many of the Corinthian Christians, not only would they gather together for the Lord's Supper at the table of the Lord, but they also would still go to pagan feasts and pagan temples. And Paul says this in verse 21. Look at, look at chapter 10 and verse 21. Paul says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. He says, demonic powers are behind everything the world worships. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake. Want to guess what that word is? Koinonia. You can't participate. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of of demons. In other words, you cannot have fellowship, commune, you cannot have koinonia with what the world worships and with Christ. 
can't dine at both tables. You cannot intimately dine at both tables with different dates. You can't two-time Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. That's the way the Old Testament talks too, right? In the Old Testament, any time that people's hearts would wander after other gods, what did God call it? He called it adultery. He said, you can't two-time me. You say you have union and communion with me? I say I have union and communion with my wife, Holly? You better believe she's like, that means no union and communion with somebody else. You know what I'm saying? And that marital reality is the small picture meant to point to the larger picture of our relationship with God. If I can't two-time my wife, how much more can the church not two-time Jesus? And yet the Corinthians are trying to do that. Through this meal... They claimed union, and they claimed to commune with Christ, all the while uniting and communing and communing with what the world worships. Their lives, in other words, undercut the very meaning of this meal. This meal means I have union with Christ. I am communing with Christ. But their lives said no, otherwise. They'd undercut the meaning of the meal. And so they desperately needed the grace that comes from this table to confront them and call them back to communion with Christ. Shades, we need that grace too. In this particular moment. Week after week, through this table, we come and we celebrate our union with Christ. We come and we commune with Christ. But during the rest of the week, who or what does our heart have koinonia with? Throughout the rest of of our life, who, who or what do we unite our hearts to as the Lord of our lives that we love and pursue and listen to? Jesus himself said you can only be united to one Lord. Matthew 6 and verse 24, Jesus said no one can serve two masters. You you cannot have God as your master and also money. You can't have God as your master and also yourself or possessions, materialism or popularity or career or kids. God cannot be your master and also the Democratic or Republican Party. God can't be your master and also Fox News or MSNBC. God can't be your master and also Instagram or, or Twitter. You should have one influencer. No one can serve two masters for he will hate one and love the other. We cannot, shades, we cannot come to this table week after week confessing that we are united to Christ all the while our lives saying our true koinonia lies somewhere else. Do our lives undercut the very meaning of this meal? Shades, we desperately need the grace that comes through the means of the table. Because our vertical issues aren't that different from Corinth's, and neither are our horizontal issues. They were having horizontal issues too with their brothers and sisters. Flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Read with me starting in verse 18. Paul says, when you come together, there it is, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Dokimos. Those who are genuine among you, I tell you that word on purpose, it'll come back later, okay? Those who are genuine, dokimos among you, it means approved. 
In other words, you're creating factions among you so that some of you can look better than others like you're approved by God and specially have his blessing. We've seen Corinth do this with other things. They did it with teachers and preachers. I follow this better teacher and preacher and so that makes me more approved by God. We've seen them do it with spiritual gifts. I have these gifts and that makes me more spiritual, more approved by God. Now they're doing it with the table. Verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. Prolambano. Each one goes ahead or receives. Each one takes his own meal. I tell you that word because it's going to come up later. Prolambano. Each one of them selfishly takes. It's not a matter of speed here that you're eating before other people has a chance. It's a matter that you are bringing something and keeping it to yourself. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? He's not telling them to stuff themselves at home, but he's like, if you're going to do that, that larger meal, keep that meal at home. Don't bring it. We're, we're having the Lord's Supper in here. Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Here's the deal, Shade. In Corinthian culture, dinner parties were a very common way to showcase your social status. The wealthy would invite all their rich friends over and they would have these lavish meals in their dining hall while all the servants ate in the atrium. There are their meager portions out, out there. It was a real Downton Abbey situation, like upstairs, downstairs thing going on here. If you don't get that reference, don't worry about it. Apparently, the Corinthian church had brought this cultural tradition right over into their church gatherings. They used meals when they gathered together to showcase who God had really approved, Dakimos, who he'd really approved of by blessing them with so much. They had so much to eat and to drink, and so they were blessed by God. The rich, as a result, were feasting while the poor members were going hungry. The poor members may, we don't know for sure, but they may have even been forced to eat in a different room. I mean, they're following everything else that goes along with what their culture does. But then after they'd all stuffed themselves, they would come together for the Lord's Supper, a meal that declared that they were united in Christ. But everything they'd done leading up to that moment undercut the very meaning of the meal. Do you see that? Divide us all up and then let's have a meal that says we're one in Jesus. Everything they did undercut the meaning of the meal. Corinth desperately needed the horizontal grace of the table. And shade, so do we. Desperately in this moment of division and disconnection, we desperately need the horizontal grace of the, the table. Week after week, through this table, we celebrate union and the communion that we have with one another, through this meal, Shades, we are declaring that we are one. Yet would Paul say the same thing to us that he said to Corinth, I see that there are divisions among you. I don't know, say political divisions. Not that we all have to be the same politically, not saying that at all. Good luck with that anyway. But what I'm saying is, do we harbor ill will towards brothers and sisters of Christ in Christ because they have differing political opinions? 
Instead of going to them and having open and honest, raw, real, loving conversations where we're gracious with one another, instead of doing that, we post about it passive-aggressively, about how our position is more dokimos, approved by God. Or do we just stew on it privately? Or perhaps we feel divisions in the body over different ways that people have responded to the pandemic. Perhaps we pride ourselves on our superior response. Perhaps we harbor bitterness towards others. But still, we take from the one loaf and the one cup that declares that we are one and have koinonia with each other while our lives undercut the very meaning of this meal. Shades. We, I, we desperately need the grace that comes through the means of this meal. We need it to graciously confront us. Do you see what this meal is doing? It will not let us wander away from communion with Christ. It's constantly calling us back. It will not let us wander away from communion with each other and settle for divisions among one another. It is constantly calling us back. We need this meal to graciously, lovingly confront us and graciously call us away from that which will starve our faith. Union with the world and division in the church. That will starve your faith, Shades. We need it to call us back to what will feed our faith, communion with Christ and his church. Shades, this is how the table is a means of grace. Through constantly calling us back to communion with Christ and his church. Do you see it? See it through the directions of the table. Vertical and horizontal. Second, see it in the declaration of the table past, present, and future. See it in the declaration of the table, past, present, and future. Here in 1 Corinthians 11, look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord, prolambano. I received. You remember that word? I mentioned it just a second ago, back up in verse 21, where the rich received Pro Lambano, they received or they took their own supper in order to show off their social status. Paul uses the same word right here to say, here's what it actually looks like to receive the Lord's Supper. In a way, not that shows off your status, but that shows off his grace. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul says Jesus gave us this meal. That's why we call it the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord gave it. We receive it. It's a means of his grace you don't work for grace you don't earn it you receive we receive it see that through the declaration of the table this table declares 
the gospel. You're like, it declares? I don't, I don't hear anything. Paul just used the word proclamation. Every time you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This table is proclaiming something to you. It's declaring something. Now, a sermon may be the word verbalized, but the table is the word the gospel visualized. Here, you get a visual declaration, a touchable, a tasteable one. The table declares the gospel past, present, and future. It declares the good news. We're going to take those one at a time. It declares the good news of what was purchased in the past. This table declares the good news, the gospel, of what was purchased in the past. Did you see what Jesus said right here in these verses we just read from 1 Corinthians 11? He said, do this in remembrance. Remember. Which, by the way, biblical remembrance is never just a mental activity. It's always recalling something to mind in order to act upon it. We'll see that play out a little bit more in just a little bit. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, specifically in remembrance of his body broken and his blood poured out to purchase every promise of the new covenant. You see that, and he says this cup of the new covenant. His body was broken, blood poured out to purchase every promise of the new covenant. What are, what are all the promises of the new covenant? Promise for pardon of sin. That's Jeremiah 31 and verse 34. I will forgive all your iniquity. I'll take away all your sin. Promise of the pardon of our sin, but it's more than that. It's the promise of, of power for our sanctification and the promise of your future glorification. Listen to Jeremiah 32 and verse 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. In other words, I didn't just purchase the forgiveness of your sin. I purchased your sanctification. You're not going to turn away from me. I'm going to keep pouring out my sustaining grace towards you. I'll keep doing good towards you. And it's going to sustain you, strengthen you. You will not turn away from doing it. I purchased your glorification. This is an everlasting covenant. You're going to make it all the way home. Christ purchased with the blood of the new covenant. He purchased all of that in the past. This table declares to us again, anew, afresh, the good news, the gospel good news of what was purchased in the past. And this table declares to us the good news of what Christ is providing in the present. Not just the past, but also the present. Jesus says, do this. That is present tense, which in Greek is an ongoing, continuous action. Jesus commanded that his church keep doing this. Keep on doing this. Continue in this. Keep taking this supper in the present. Why? Because when we do, something is happening in the present. What's, what's happening? Well, remember back from 1 Corinthians 10 just a few moments ago, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 said we are participating, koinonia, we are fellowshipping, communing with Christ in the present. In other words, at this table, Shades, we are not just remembering. We are doing that. But I was taught growing up that that's all we were doing. The Lord's Supper was like a memorial service to a dead Jesus. It's a celebration of communing with a living Christ. We're not just remembering Jesus' past purchase. We are presently feasting on what he purchased. Every promise of the new covenant. Every promise that God has made to us, they were all purchased, secured by Christ at the cross. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20. All the promises of God find their yes in Him. 
His promise that your sin is forgiven? His promise that He's with you, He'll never leave you or forsake you? His promise that He is empowering you, that His grace is sufficient for us and His power is made perfect in weakness? His promise that nothing will separate you from His love, that He will sustain you all the way home to glorification and new creation? Shades, every single promise you can find in this Word was purchased by Christ at the cross. Romans 8.32, debatably the best promise in the Bible. He who did not spare His own Son, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. In other words, if God didn't spare His own Son, if He did the hard thing, the most difficult thing, will He not also do every single thing He's promised, every other thing? This is the ground, the purchase of every promise of God. Christ purchased them all. And when we come to this table, we feast on those promises. We feast on the fact our sin's forgiven now. We feast on the promise Christ is with us right now. He is empowering us right now. He's lavishing His love upon us right now. And He will sustain us all the way home. That's the gospel good news that this table declares about the future declares the good news of everything that Christ purchased in the past, which He is providing right now in the present. And this table declares the gospel good news of what is promised in the future. Look at verse 26 again. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, declare, the Lord's death until He comes. Shades, when you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim, declare the Lord's death past until, that's the present that we are living in, he comes, future. In doing this, doing, it's in the action, the action, in doing this, the gospel is being declared to your soul. And that includes the promise of what He will do. The very promise that Jesus made when He gave us this meal. Matthew 26 and verse 29. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day that I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This table's declaring that promise to you anew every single time. Jesus isn't drinking with us yet. And this table promises, this is a foretaste of the fact that He will. This supper declares to us the promise that is a foretaste of the future feast. It it is a foretaste of the future feast that's coming. Shades, we sing about this all the time. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will say together, we will feast and weep no more. We'll feast in the house of Zion, a new creation. This is just a foretaste. That's why the portions are so small. Like, I'm serious, it's a small foretaste. It's not the full feast. The full feast is coming, and this table is meant to be a foretaste of that future. And every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming, declaring this gospel to yourself and to everyone watching. Everyone around you, to the world. 
when you take this meal, you are proclaiming, declaring, I believe this gospel. I believe Jesus' body was broken and his blood poured out to purchase every ounce of grace in the past. I believe he's here providing that grace to strengthen and sustain my faith more than eating bread and drinking juice sustains the physical body. I believe it's the body and the blood of Christ that he is providing, strengthening, sustaining me right now in the present. And I believe the gracious promise of his future that he is coming. Shades, when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death, past, until, present. He comes, future. Do you see how the table is a means of grace that feeds your faith? It's, it's like my son Solomon, my, my two-year-old. It's like whenever he wants to jump into my arms, but he's like really nervous about it. He lacks faith. And so what do I do? I feed his faith. I say, Solomon, I've always caught you in the past. It's mostly true. We're going to pretend like it's always true. Solomon, I've always caught you in the past. I will. I will catch you in the present. And I promise I will always catch you in the future. And his faith is strengthened. And he leaps. In a similar way, it's not a perfect analogy, but in a similar way, this is how the table feeds our faith. It's how it's a means of grace. It constantly calls us to remember Christ purchased in the past, to feast upon all it provides in the present, and to get a foretaste of its future fullness. Do you see shades? The declaration of the table, past, present, and future. Finally, how's the table a means of grace? See it in the do this of the table. Mentally, physically, spiritually. The do this of the table, mentally, physically, spiritually. We've seen how the table is a means of grace, and so now the question becomes, how do we avail ourselves of it? In, in other words, when we come to this table, week after week, what, what, what do we actually do? Jesus said, do this. Do what? What, what are we to do? Is this just a mental thing? We just remember? Is it just a physical thing? We just eat? Is it just a spiritual thing? We just believe? No. It's all of that. This table engages our whole being, mentally, physically, spiritually. Take those very quickly, one at a time. Mentally. Look in chapter 11 and verses 24 and 25 again, and you can see this because right there you see the word repeated twice, remembrance. Christ told us to do, do this, do this supper in remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ. There's mental activity here. Your mind must be engaged. In other words, you can't just go through the motions of this supper and expect it to be a means of grace. That's what the Corinthians were doing. They were not receiving grace through the table. Because this, shades, this bread, this cup, they're not little bits of magic. It, it's not like magical blessing from God and it's blessed so as long as you just kind of physically throw them down your throat, you, you get the grace of God. No, 
Your mind, we see right here, must be engaged. We must remember. We must remember the vertical meaning of this meal. If we want to experience it as a means of grace that confronts our communion with the world and calls us back to communion with Christ, we've got to remember the vertical meaning of this meal. We are to have koinonia with him. 1 John 1.6 says, If we say we have fellowship, koinonia, with Christ, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We've got to remember the vertical meaning of this meal. And when we do, that should cause us to discern, another mental activity, that should cause us to discern the horizontal meaning of this meal. That's what Paul lays out in verses 27 and 29. Look at it. Whoever therefore eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, dokimatso. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks the cup without discerning, examine yourself, mental activity, discerning mental activity, Anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Remember the rich that we talked about back up in verse 19 who thought themselves approved by God? Dokimos. Paul tells them, examine yourself. Dokimatso. See his wordplay? Saying you think that you're approved by God? You need to examine yourself to see what that actually means. He says, examine yourself. Why? Because you're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, an unfitting manner. He's not saying that they are unworthy. No, we're only made worthy by Christ. He's not saying make yourself worthy. No, he says you're taking the supper in an unworthy manner, in an unfitting manner, a way that doesn't fit with the table. Your life is undercutting the meaning of the meal. Why? He says, because you aren't discerning the body. That means, that phrase, means at least two things. One, they aren't discerning this meal is about the body of Christ, broken for the church that he loves. Thus, they're not doing the second thing. They're not discerning the body of the church that they also should love. Paul is having a blast with some wordplay right here. The way that Corinth is taking this supper doesn't fit with the meaning of the supper. How about us? Like when we come to this table, do we remember that this is a meal about Christ's body broken for his church? You can know if you do. Because if you do, you will discern that you cannot fittingly take this meal unless you are likewise loving his church. This is a meal about how Christ loved the church. I can only fittingly take it if I am likewise loving the church. In other words, I cannot have communion with Christ through his broken body if I have broken communion with his body, the church. You hear that? One more time. I cannot have communion with Christ through his broken body if I have broken communion with his body, the church. That doesn't fit. And Paul warns that to take the supper that way is not to receive it as a means of grace, but as a means of judgment. I'm not saying that. The text is saying that. Verse 30 and 32, you can look at it right there. It says that some of the Corinthians have been sick or even died. He's talking about Christians. The word there isn't actually died. It's fallen asleep, which is the way that the New Testament refers to Christians who die. 
Some of the Corinthians have been sick or even fallen asleep, died because of what they have been doing at the Lord's table. Now, Paul quickly, very quickly right there in verses 30 to 32, points out that this is not condemnation from the Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not condemnation from the Lord. It is his loving discipline to keep these people from making shipwreck of their faith. This too is grace. He gives us nothing but grace through the table. And this too is grace. Why? Because dead flesh is not as bad as dead faith shades. It's not. And he will not allow these people to make shipwreck of their faith. He loves them too much. Shades, this warning right here, it is not meant to make you wring your hands and freak out about coming to the table. Like, oh my goodness, have I gone through a detailed list of every last sin that I've committed? And if I miss one, am I going to like eat this bread and drink this cup and drop dead? No, we would all be dead. No, it's not, it's not meant to make you freak out like you've got to go over every detail of every sin you've ever committed. This is this warning. It's not about details. It's about a disposition. What's the disposition of your heart towards Christ and towards the members of his church? It's saying, don't come to this table and say you've got communion and union with Christ and his church if you don't. That's got to be the disposition of your heart. This table is a means of grace to keep us from drifting away and making shipwreck of our faith. It weakly makes us remember to come back to communion with Christ. It weakly makes us discern whether or not we are living in communion with his church. It engages our minds through remembering, examining, and discerning. We are to do this mentally. In just a moment. In just a moment, you're going to be invited to the table. And you're going to be invited to take time to remember. Remember what this table is about. Time to examine yourself, to discern. Am I in communion with the body of Christ? You'll have time to confess to Christ. If you find that you have been communing with someone else as Lord other than Him, It's time to go to one another, confess to a brother or sister divisions that you have felt with them to get back into communion with them. You may have to, that may not be in this room, you may have to call somebody. It's okay. I had to do this recently. I have to do this often. I make it sound like I do this like once every now and then. No, but I had to do it while I was preparing for this sermon. I'm preparing for this sermon, writing and reading about, you know, this is why many of you are sick and some of you have died. And I'm like, I need to call somebody. I had to call one of our elders after our last elders meeting. I won't tell you who it was. But I had to confess, brother, like, I've been harboring bitterness and ill will in my heart. Will you forgive me? I cannot come to the table that declares I have communion with the church if I don't have communion with, with you. You'll have time to do this. We do this mentally, but not just mentally, also physically. We do this physically. Verse 28 says that after we examine ourselves, we should eat. That's, that's a physical action. In other words, what I'm trying to say to you, Shades, is this supper is not merely a mental exercise. 
It's not merely remembering, examining, discerning. Jesus said, you, that's plural. Let's be good Southerners here. Jesus said, y'all, do this. Y'all, physically come together. Not This is not an individualistic thing. We realize right now we can't all physically be together. We've got to do this whole digital, physical hybrid. It's an exception to the rule at this moment. I don't want anybody feeling bad. I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad if he's at home. Everybody's where they need to be. But he's saying, y'all come together. It's an individualistic action. It's a together action. And y'all physically take this bread and eat it. Physically take this cup and drink it. Do this. The physical act is necessary. Our God is a God of means. He loves to work his power through things. He feeds your faith through the word. Shades, but not apart from the physical act of hearing. He feeds your faith through prayer, but not apart from the physical act of speaking. He feeds your faith through song, but not apart from the physical act of singing. And he feeds your faith through the table, but not apart from the physical act of eating. Shades, hear the reality of Christ, past, present, and future love. It is here presented to you. It is for you, and it is as tangible as the bread you touch. His past, present, and future grace is as tasteable as the cup you drink. He really has been given to you as surely as the bread and the cup are given to you. I am not saying that these elements are magical. They are not a means of grace unless they are received in faith. Which is why you don't just do this physically. We do this spiritually. Final thing. Don't just do this mentally. We don't just do it physically. Also do it spiritually. Shades. A non-Christian can mentally remember what this meal is about. A non-Christian can physically eat this meal. They shouldn't, but they could. And if they do, it's still not a means of grace. Because it must be received in faith. This is how all the means of grace that we have talked about work. Just think about God's word. We talked about the preached word, right? You can hear this word all day long. But without a heart of faith, it will not be a means of grace. The physical act of hearing the preached word, it's necessary. But it's got to be done in faith. So also with the table. You can eat and drink from this table all day long, but without a heart of faith, it's not a means of grace. The physical act of eating and drinking is necessary, but it must be done in faith. This is why in verse 27, Paul emphasizes the manner, the manner in which the supper is received. It must be received in a manner that fits with the table, and the manner is faith. Think about this with me. Faith fits with the directions of the table. We receive this supper in faith that we are vertically communing with Christ. He's united himself to to us and to one another, horizontal communion. Faith fits with the direction of the table. Faith fits with the declaration of the table. We receive this supper in faith that we are feasting on all Christ has, that we are feasting in the present on all that Christ has purchased in the past and his promises of the future. Faith fits with the declaration of the table. Faith fits, faith is the ultimate do this of the table. Because everything that we do 
mentally. Everything that we do physically, everything that we do spiritually, it's all got to be done in faith. And Shades, right now, I want to invite you to do this. Mentally, physically, spiritually, with, with your whole self. I want to invite you to this table, this means of God's sanctifying, sustaining, strengthening grace. I want to invite you to this family meal that feeds your